Hello and welcome to Theodisc, the WTC podcast where we discuss all things theological. I'm your host, Kenny Innes, and I'm delighted to say that this is our first ever episode. We want this podcast to present theological ideas in an accessible way that will hopefully stimulate you to pursue your own theological learning and ultimately to deepen your faith. And who better to have as our first guest than Dr. Lucy Peppiot? Since 2013, Lucy has been the principal of WTC, where she lectures primarily in systematic theology and in spiritual formation. She's the author of five books, the latest of which is called The Imago Dei. And over the next two episodes, I'll be talking to Lucy about the book and why the doctrine of the image of God is so foundational to the Christian faith. In this first episode, we discuss the importance of the Imago Dei, why it's such a difficult doctrine to define neatly, and also some of the broader implications it has on how we think about God and ourselves. I do hope you enjoy this first episode. Lucy, welcome to the Theodisc podcast. Thank you. Uh, I'm delighted that you're actually going to be the first guest on the podcast because um, you always have something interesting and thought-provoking to say. So no pressure. <laughs> I'll try. You're required, to, you're required to be interesting and thought-provoking <laughs> over the next 25 minutes. <laughs> Seriously, it's great to have you. Uh, great to have the chance to talk with you and really to talk through your brand new book, um, The Imago Dei. Um, and maybe to explore some of the ways in which we understand this doctrine and maybe even to be provoked into thinking um, in some new ways about how this concept mm -hmm. of the image of God can inform our faith. Um, and we're going to dig into all that in a minute. But first, I want to subject you to three questions uh, that I'm going to ask all of our first time mm -hmm. guests, just in order to get to know you um, a little bit. So these questions are about some of the things that you return to, your comforts, the constants that you carry with you mm -hmm. in life, that sounds quite grand. I'm actually just going to ask you about a few of your favorite things. That's essentially <laughs> what it is. So ready? Here we go. Yeah, the, ready. The first one is, what is a book that you return to? Um, a book? Well, uh, a theological book that I return to uh, every year, I, I think, is Athanasius's um, On the Incarnation of the Word. I, I love going back rereading it i used it in my teaching on christology and um yeah i would say that good one yes i've been in a couple of your classes so i know <laughs> about that book second question a food that you return to oh food well i love loads of different foods but i would say uh one of my comfort foods is to have roast chicken that's definitely i i yeah that's a, a treat, but it's really lovely. Reminds me of lots of happy times. That's good. Now, I, I like, I, I grab the roast chicken in the bag um, from Morrison's that's pre-cooked, but I'm assuming oh, that you're okay. talking about like doing the full, the full whack. I'm talking about preparing it and putting nice things on top of it, herbs and onions and lemons and salt. Yeah, but it's fine. There's no judgment here, Kenny, <laughs> over roast chicken. You probably, you probably make giblet <laughs> gravy, don't you? Uh, if if at all possible yes i knew it if it comes with the giblets <laughs> definitely and the third question a place that you return to oh a place 
actually uh, there are a few places um but the first thing that popped into my head a place that i would love to be able to return to over and over again is italy um it is actually a place that my husband and i have returned to on significant anniversaries so we've had three visits there um together which that's been very special so uh so yeah italy is just a big favorite country of mine and his as well love it that's great thank you okay let's go on to what we're going to be talking about um yeah (laughs) now what i find interesting obviously you are you know i think you would describe yourself as a a systematic theologian primarily i would yeah um this is your fifth book um and so in terms of the books that you've written actually what's interesting is this book the imago day um is actually kind of the first book that you've that really would fit into that wheelhouse of a, a straightforward systematic theology book that's correct yeah so that must be a nice feeling to eventually get around to it <laughs> it is very nice actually yeah i have i have a few essays out in volumes but yeah this was the first book looking at at a doctrine um, and kind of delving into that. So it's, it was very rewarding to do it, yeah. So maybe you can just talk a little bit about um, what led to the to the writing of the book. Yeah, it was actually came out of a conversation with Robin Parry, who is one of the editors at Whitfieldstock. And I was talking to him quite a number of years ago about a particular interest that I want to pursue probably over a number of years actually about um, a theological anthropology and and working out my own in a sense what what do I think about a theological anthropology as a charismatic and and he was saying well if you you know if that's a kind of long-term goal why don't you take steps towards that in things that you publish and how about doing some, you know, a short book on just the whole topic of the Imago Day? And I thought that was a fantastic idea. Little thinking, really, of how much work it was going to be to write a short book on a huge doctrine. Um, and I should have thought that through before committing to it. But it was, um, but it, it, I learned massive. You know, I mean, this is the privilege of writing is that you learn so much and of course learn all the things you don't know as well um but so that was that was the project to write a short uh, introductory book on the, the the doctrine of the imago day of humanity made in the image of god and um that's what i finally completed <laughs> yeah i think it's important to say obviously i mean the, the, the book is is short so it's kind of an overview of kind of the mm-hmm. the doctrine itself and kind of some historical thinking um, about the doctrine mm-hmm. but um yeah so forty-five thousand words still sounds quite long to me though oh <laughs> yeah one day kenny <laughs> when you're writing your phd yeah yeah <laughs> all right uh so why is the doctrine of the imago Dei so um important for us to wrestle with it yes i mean as i was writing the book i i well i think i for many years have known how important the doctrine is the because it's so foundational to so much of our thinking about god we can't think about god uh in a christian sense um outside of the idea that god is the creator the of the heavens and the earth and the the pinnacle of his creation was to create humanity and this is what the genesis texts tell us and it's very um sort of 
it's hugely thought provoking for us to try and wrestle with this idea that somehow something in the whole of humanity, not just the church, um, images God, the creator, um, when there seems to be really, I think I would say very little that we might be able to identify that we actually have in common, you know, when we look at, at ourselves and one another, what of God do we see? And um, so I found that enormously challenging, really, the matching the Christian, Judeo-Christian teaching on humanity and then reality and, um, and, and whole theories of personhood and who we are and who we think we are. And um, so it is, it is dealing with like really big questions of life about identity and purpose and origin, um, say origin first, shouldn't I? And then purpose, uh, vocation, um, all sorts of very, very big questions. Uh, who am I and why am I here? So, um, and who is God? that he would make us in his image. So it's fascinating. Yeah, I guess it's one of the things that's so rich about the doctrine itself is that it's not just some static thing that stays kind of on the page, but actually mm -hmm. has implications that are really wide reaching for us. And I think mm -hmm. I used the word wrestle a second ago, and I think maybe that's a good word to use, an appropriate term when we come to talk about the Imago Dei, because um, defining the term the Imago Dei or what it means for us seems to be quite a difficult task the question um what does it mean to be made in the image of god that it feels like a fundamental question without a simple answer and why why do you think that is having having looked at kind of the history of christian thought on it i think two things i think one of the things is that we actually don't have a lot of data in the scriptures we we have less than i think we think we have in, at times and less than we'd like to have. And so a lot of the answers to the question are, are left undefined in the Hebrew and Christian scriptures. It, to some extent, we're given a very sharp definition in, as we move into Christianity and the image is defined really in solely in relation to Jesus. Um, but even then, you know, you're defining it in terms of this huge topic of Christology. So that just opens up a whole other theological kind of, you know, treasure trove. Um, and so, so we're, we're, we're left really with the task of searching, I think, from the scriptures. And, and I think that's how God intended it to be, to give us something of the revelation but not the full revelation and then overlaid onto that you have the fact that history changes the way that people and the history of thought changes the way that people understand what it means to be a human being and so as that's evolved and changed and changes depending on different cultures then that's sort of overlaid and projected onto what does it mean to be made in the image of God when you think about what does it mean to be a human being. So it's it's a very complex question tied up with all sorts of things that are always changing um, and shifting. And so as I saw in the, as I was doing my research, the way that people understand the role of the human being on the earth even, and in relation to creations, huge, huge issues now um, will change the way we understand the Imago Dei. 
so it must have involved a lot of sifting through kind of um, the history of thought on the doctrine. Um, were there any discoveries that you, I, I, I mean, I know you're fairly well steeped in that thought anyway, um, you teach on it, but were there any discoveries that you made, you kind of thought that's interesting or hadn't thought about it that way or anything that kind of appeared as you looked over this this whole mm -hmm. umbrella of, of, the, of the thought through through the ages? Oh yeah, definitely. And, and and there's you know, like I said, there's always so much to learn. And then always you're left with this realization that there's so much you still don't know. <laughs> but so what um, can that even be? that you know <laughs> even though I've written this little yeah. book on it, I feel like I'm just a novice, you know. But um yes, there were things that struck me uh in different ways. I I only have a very short section on the Imago Day and disability, but I was, I felt very privileged to have time to look into to some of those issues, which I think unless you make an effort to, to it, you know, if you don't live with a disability and you haven't done any theological reflection on that, then having the time to listen to other people is important. And that, that I found, I learned a lot through that. Um, I learned that I completely disagree with Bart's reading of uh, male and females, the image of God. Mm -hmm. So that, and I, you know, I deeply respect Bart and I love much of his theology. So, so that was good to work all of that through and um, work out why I disagree and the things that I think. Um, I think I was quite challenged by the, 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 difference of understanding people made in the image of the trinity and people who believe that actually were just made into the image of christ um and why how people fall on different sides of that fence and what the implications of that and then that has also implications for gender male and female um and whether we can read that uh, literally into the image or not and then questions of the body and the importance of the body and, and how much Christians have spiritualized things over the years, the centuries, um, and, and that how much that's being challenged. And images of perfection, which actually ties in a bit with disability theology, um, but I think is very relevant for any, any way that people see their bodies. I mean, obviously it's a very live issue for women and young women, but it isn't just women, it's it's all young people and however they see their body and whoever they see themselves to be. Um, this idea that there's some sort of perfection of that, you know, there's an instantiation of perfection that people think they should inhabit and how twisted and distorted that is. Um, and the and and whether you know whether that has some sort of christian roots that need to be uprooted or what you know that have been distorted or or where we get those ideas from and so i i mean there's lots i could talk about lots of things that i learned but those are just a, a few things that sparked my interest and attention as i was going through i mean that's quite an interesting one because as we know the kind of um the standards of beauty change you know as, as mm -hmm. centuries go on for both men and women but particularly women mm -hmm. you know and that the objectification of women so we are kind of yeah. i guess we're kind of stuck in our own time and what we see but mm -hmm. um it's interesting that that 
as that changes, maybe there's a there's a rooting there um, that the Imago Day provides for us and kind of our inherent worth, um, regardless mm-hmm. of what the cultural standards are. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. We can't possibly do it all, you know, in the 25 minutes that we have to talk to you, but maybe we can d- dig into a couple of those ideas. I, I, I kind of liked um, your question about Genesis one twenty six, and, um, you know, this is there a difference between the idea of the image and the likeness um, of God? Mm-hmm. Why are those two terms used? Maybe we can talk just briefly about that. Yeah, it, that it, that's some of the things that are... Uh one of the things that's slightly tantalizing i think for for scholars is um there are two words used in the hebrew selim and demut and we use them in english image and likeness and the the question that scholars wrestle with is whether they are really just two words expressing the same thing or whether there's a significant difference between one and the other and um and really they've been read both ways uh so there's strong traditions both ways uh with the image the because the 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 idea of the image selim has a more concrete connotation to it so it could be like a statue or an idol and the likeness and actually that's sort of we translate them you know quite well (laughs) and the likeness is does it just resemble does it do we just resemble god um in that in some way do we have some sort of stamp upon us um and so people have read that in different ways that interestingly so irenaeus both irenaeus and aquinas do see them as different concepts and um, would say that the image is referring to a sort of universal sense in which all human beings, just by nature of being created, are created in God's image. But that likeness is, is reserved for those who are in Christ, who are being transformed into the likeness of God. Um, and so they, they would see that as they would put it divide between those two and I think that perhaps either consciously or subconsciously many many people do that um but whether that's what the text actually meant I I'm not sure I, yeah I mean this is what's so hard is that what is this what the question is what is the image in humanity where is it can we locate it? Can we describe it? Can we identify it? That's those are the challenging questions, and or the likeness um, to, with it. Yeah, and and one of your other questions, kind of, I, I guess, kind of um, pushes into that that tension, because you talk about the universality of the idea of the Imago mm-hmm. Dei, but also it becomes quite specific um, in Christ um, later mm-hmm. on in the New Testament and. And how do we marry those two things and and hold everybody under that same that same idea of being made in the image of God? Yes, and are there what are the what are the things that all humanity share as the image, and what distinguishes humans who are being remade into the image of Christ? And is there a sort of inherent 
you know, inequality or or it's sort of imperialism in that that Christians are saying, oh well, we are being transformed more into God's likeness. Um, and how do we navigate that? You know. Yeah. Um, and and I guess springboarding out of that um the universality thing and also this kind of the the discussion we've had about what happens in in genesis at the beginning is you talk about um male and female he made them and Mm. i guess we uh, well there seems to be some some kind of um a thought that kind of the the man was made in the image of God and then the the woman just kind of comes along later. But you talk about kind of, the, is there a constitutive image that the male and female make up um, that that kind of constitutes the image of God, the two the two together? Well, so yes, this is where, this is where I touched on Bart and how I disagree with him. <laughs> that he, he argues that the image is complete only as male and female together and then gets into quite a complicated explanation where he seems to move without really much precision between the idea of male and female just as as units who might be together in the world and marriage where they're actually consummating a union and then in that marriage being the image and then so that raises so many awkward questions for people on their own and women on their own and anyway is a woman you know and at one point he would say that the man on his own can constitute the image in some way but you know but needs to be completed with by the woman but the woman on her own couldn't you know inhabit that image in the same way and so there is this sort of fundamental inequality which he tries to he tries to iron out um it's it's very much complicated uh, by a phrase in 1 Corinthians 11, 7, actually, and I, I do touch on this in my book. It's the only time in the New Testament that image of God is used in relation to men only. Um, otherwise, the image of God, the icon, as the, the word is in Greek in the New Testament, is used only in relation to Christ. And so I think that this, anyway, I've done a lot of work on 1 Corinthians 11. Yeah. And so it's interesting for me. Well, this was another, you said, why did I write the book? And it was very interesting as I had sort of committed to it many years ago. But as I was working through it, realizing that the, I've done an awful lot of work on the image of God reference in 1 Corinthians 11, 79 in a completely different context, um, as I propose that those that the theology in, in those verses are, is actually Corinthian theology that Paul is citing, uh, which is why you end up with this very strange verse that man is the image and glory of God and woman is the glory of man. But actually, it's a hugely controlling verse mm. that people then take back and read Genesis 1 and 2 through it um, and, and leads to it compounds as a sense, a sort of intuition that somehow man takes precedence as the image and woman somehow slots under him in some way or or derives her image somehow from him rather than directly from God. And so that gets very complicated. I've touched on that in this book and I touch and I deal with it in more detail in my other books, but I think it's really important that we get some clarity of thinking on that issue 
um, because, as you say, image of God theology has also been distorted and tied up with the subordinationist theology of sub the subordination of woman to man. Um, and there are uh, there are sort of threads in scripture that could lead us in that direction. And I've spent quite a bit of my time uh, as a scholar unpicking those threads and trying to demonstrate that they that that is unfounded in scripture. Um, so uh, yes, so in terms of the male and female reference, my reading of it is that that is an unqualified. Um, sense of approval and of uh, and the the ordination of the image to the male and the female you know the the impartation of the image goes to the male and the female so it's actually the opposite of any subordination it's a it's an unqualified um sort of uh, affirmation of the woman as the image as well Well, I mean, there we go. Um, as you kind of unpack that there, there's kind of all these um, implications that, that unfold. And I think e each one of these questions that you dig into starts to starts to show that a fundamental understanding of this is really important to how we all live and relate to one another and also how we relate to God. And, and mm -hmm. I thought there's just, the, the doctrine itself seems to link humans and God inextricably. That is, mm -hmm. at least from our perspective, we learn something of God by looking at ourselves. And we also yeah. learn something of ourselves by looking at God, which is kind of the beauty of mm -hmm. this doctrine. But I, I wondered how we can push into that understanding while still there seems to be still uh, the necessity for a healthy boundary, a healthy distinction between mm. who God is and who humans are. So maybe you can mm. talk to that a little bit. Yes. And this has been one of the one of the concerns of scholars through the ages is how do we maintain that distinction? How, how do we affirm the image and the likeness, but maintain the distinction between God and ourselves? Um, and so that's a sort of fine line. And I know in our second podcast, we're going to be talking about some of the different examples that I look at in my different chapters of of how people have interpreted this differently. Um, but I think that when you, you get to the New Testament and the image is read through the lens of Jesus Christ, one of the things that, um, so we're united to Christ and in Christ through his humanity, you know, in Hebrews kind of affirms that he was just like us, like his brothers and sisters sisters in every respect um, and so there is something the son of God becomes exactly like us but without sin uh, Hebrew the author of Hebrews goes on to say and um, and so we have this very strict line between us where Christ is the sinless one and we are the ones who are still in our sin even though we have been forgiven and so it that ties in with image theology um because what i one of the other things i i realized really was 
was how deeply it, the image of God doctrine is an ethical claim. Mm. It has so many ethical ramifications of, of how, what human beings are called to be and to do on the earth. Um, and so when it's filled out in Christ, you see that so clearly that, you know, the one holy, perfect, sinful, beautiful human being of God and was God who we rejected um, because something in us, that the sinfulness in us, the, the rejecter of God in us um, couldn't, couldn't abide that beauty mm. and that holiness and that that humanity that was actually perfect although when you look at him and his ministry on earth he was weak and vulnerable and fragile and you know was lonely tired thirsty as well as being enormously authoritative and powerful but so so i think that once we get to christ that helps us in our thinking um but anyway i'll stop there because We'll move on to another question. I could go. I realize I'm realizing I can just talk for pages. So you'll just have to shut me up, Penny. <laughs> well, we are going to have another episode about this where we kind of dig a little bit more into kind of the history of thought on the Imago Day, and we'll we'll kind of unpack that a little bit. So we, we'll kind of wrap up this this episode here as kind of a um, a teaser. To come back <laughs> next time uh, as we as we talk more about this, I do think though that as we've spoken through this, we seem to keep unearthing this sense of um, almost how precarious sometimes this this uh, idea can be, in that it it, it can be used to, um, and that people can fall into the trap of devaluing themselves or being devalued mm -hmm. by others, and maybe mm -hmm. we can just speak briefly to people maybe who are listening um where that you know what does being made in the image of god say to mm. those who maybe are in that place of not feeling worthy or not 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 feeling like they have any value how can this be kind of a life-giving mm. doctrine for them yeah i one of the things that you realize when you read um, the ancients and their reflections on this doctrine is how easily they they fall into the language of human beings being god-like and so it would take the idea of human beings made in the image and likeness of god to say um therefore there is something that is god-like about humanity and that seems to me to be a, a, a you know a an extraordinary claim for human beings and also that god would deem human beings worthy of having something about them that reflects him i mean whether we whether we see that in ourselves or or one another um is not a proof of whether it exists because this really is based on the promise it's a promise of god in a way that um that comes to us via scripture uh that everyone who has been created was created by him in his image 
to to be like him so that so that we would be fit and and made for union with him and that that's the that was the, the that's the sort of part of the doctrine is that we were we were most like him out of all of the creation um in order to walk with him and talk with him and be in his presence constantly and and that that being like him made us the perfect partners for him the perfect people to be with him and and that that was lost so the bible tells the story of the fall you know that that's lost but that and and the story of christ is that god has come in jesus to win us back to the original um purpose and destiny destiny that he has for us to restore the image and so it's a you know it's a beautiful story of god creating a people for his own possession um but when i use the word possession i mean uh, you know his own delight um his treasured possession and to be with him for eternity and and so every every human being has an intrinsic worth and intrinsic value to god and and the scriptures tell us that because of that we are to treat humanity as godlike and therefore we don't take another life we don't spit in people's faces we we don't denigrate them and etc etc yeah i love that and i hope um anyone listening who that's uh, um you're just kind of in that place would have that sense that god's intention has not changed um and that mm-hmm. and that his desire is still for that partnership um with each of us um mm. and that there's a, a a place for us with him well Lucy, thank you i think you you fit the um the description at the, at the beginning of being thought provoking and interesting so we'll, <laughs> we'll hopefully <laughs> i hope other people think so too <laughs> one more episode to go um so thank you for being with us um today and we look forward to talking to you thank again you. Brilliant. Thanks, Kenny. Talk to you soon. Bye. Well, we hope that you found our first ever episode on Theodisc both interesting and thought-provoking. Please join us next time when Kenny and Lucy continue the discussion by exploring some of the models of understanding the Imago Dei. Lucy is the principal of WTC, a theological college that seeks to transform people through life-giving theology in the presence and power of the Spirit. Our innovative hub model allows you to study on any of our part-time programs without leaving your work or ministry. Come and find out more at wtctheology.org.uk. If you enjoyed the first episode of Theodisc or have any comments or feedback, why not send us an email at podcast at wtctheology.org.uk. We'd love to hear your thoughts as we get our podcast going. Thank you for listening to Theodisc. Do look out for part two of the Imago Day with Lucy Pepiat coming soon. Bye for now. <laughs>